Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with somebody who has lived a truly extraordinary life. So it makes sense that today my guest is a pioneer. He's a pioneer of the house DJing scene. You might not know the name Tony Manesh, but you will know the name DJ Fat Tony. He's worked with the likes of Prince, Madonna, The Beckhams, Jay-Z, Elton John, to name just a few. However, through stratospheric highs, he's also dealt with the lows. Facing addiction in an industry where excess is everywhere, he's been sober since 2006, and in the time since, he has continued to reign as king of the clubs. Well, until lockdown happened. So how does a DJ keep busy when all the clubs are shut? We're going to find out because DJ Fat Tony joins me now. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Did you like that? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really funny when people start reading stuff that you've done or about you, you know, your bio. Kind of like always makes me think it it should be my obituary. (laughs) Do you get what I mean? Yeah, well. It's mad, isn't it? it, And you're still quite young. It's quite a mad life. Oh, thank you. Well, I kind of still feel 16. Kind of, you know, when you. Well, that's because when you go into addiction, you kind of stay at that age that you started mm. taking drugs or the addiction started. So for me, I'm I'm always like a 16-year-old. I mean, you know, obviously. I wondered if you separated your life into two separate lives of like pre and post, like now you're sober. Mm. Is it the same person or is it is it two different people? Uh, it's, it's definitely the same person. You know, people always say to you, oh, you ain't changed. But you know what? It's kind of like... The if you you know if you've got fruitcake and you take the alcohol out of fruitcake what you're left with fruitcake mm. and it's kind of like you know my over the last 13 and a half years I've changed in so many ways the fact that I've learned who I am whereas yeah. before I didn't know who I was I was trying to find that yeah. and I guess if you're anesthetized of a substance you mm. don't ever get to know who you are or do the work because you're just Putting, making that barrier, aren't well, you? You're kind of just running away. You're just constantly running from any feelings or any responsibilities. So there's no time to learn. You know, mm. you 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 learn. All you do is learn survival in that in that state. Whereas today, I I, I learn and I and I continue to learn because that's what recovery allows you to do. So, you know, uh, I'm forever finding out more things about myself as 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 it goes on. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what amazes me about you is, you know, you've had this phenomenal career and in that intro, we only really touch on your achievements, but you've also had this huge addiction and normally in careers, addiction, you know, it destroys our career Mm. and it's the downfall of us, but it doesn't feel like that was the case for you. I kind of, you know, uh, it was because, you know, we, we, it's been like the rise and fall and rise again, you know, Mm. it's, uh, you know, addiction at the beginning, wasn't addiction. It was like you know, it was partying and it was drug taking, and it was it was everything that went with the career of being a DJ. And I was flying the world and doing everything and working all over uh, and building that up and building that up. But as that went up, so did my so did my drug intake and my alcohol intake. And of course, mm. what happens is when you get an addiction, it, it overtakes everything else. So the career kind yeah. of went never ever went away. It plateaued. It was always yeah. a ways and means for me to get more of anything that I had. Uh, and then, of course, towards the end of the addiction, you know, I was just doing, working to survive uh-huh. uh, in the sense of I would, you know, do two sets, two or three sets a week, and that would allow me to 
to pay for all my drugs that I needed and everything else. And, uh, and then after once I got clean, you know, it was about rebuilding that stuff. And the career kind of was put on hold. It kind of was really weird. It all kind of, I didn't DJ for a year or so. And then I started to rebuild and work out what I wanted to do. And it was taking it back, back to basics about the, the true love of music that kind of enabled it all to completely spiral to where it is now. Do you think it enabled the addiction in that you didn't have a you had a public role, but mm. unlike say a TV presenter, you didn't have to hide your addiction. No. Were you able to be open? Uh, yeah, totally, using? totally open. And you know, the thing about it was the sad thing about it was the fact that I didn't have to hide it, and yeah. I so kind of it was like a badge of honour the fact that I could stay up for four nights without sleeping and is that I, actually right four nights is that yeah how oh yeah i mean the longest was a week like almost a week six and a half days oh uh, but by that point i was hallucinating my skin was crawling you know it, it was a terrible state but you know when i was djing i got to the mindset that i i i dj'd better when i hadn't slept for three days you know, right. and, and that was it. You know, I can't do Jay unless I've been awake for three days. It was bizarre. And I, I kind of celebrated in that and people were paying for that car crash. People mm-hmm. loved that. And, you know, I, I would do interviews and in the interviews I'd say, you know, it's chemical scaffolding that that keeps me up. And I would just really boast in it because, you know, we are mm. we become what we are. Mm. And my whole life was based around drugs. Everything when I did. When was this, the 90s? So it, was, it, it kind of started... Yeah, it started in the early 90s, you know, mm-hmm. after, you know, there was always, uh, I always had, not a problem, I always had uh, a passion for drugs and then the passion turned into a problem. Uh, so throughout the whole of the 90s and the 2000s, uh, it, it kind of spiralled out of control and, and it got really, really dark, very dark. What was your drug of choice? My then? drug of choice was, uh, originally, was cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, cocaine and alcohol. I never really, throughout the 28 years of using and abusing, I never really thought that I had a problem with alcohol because it never ran out. Right. And it wasn't until it ran out that I realised I had a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with, with, with cocaine, I kind of, you know, because I come from an alcoholic background, I never, ever wanted to be an alcoholic. <laughs> I never mm-hmm. wanted to be anything, but I always looked down my nose at it in the same sense of, like my boyfriend uh, at the time, his sister was an alcoholic and all my family. Mm. So for me, I was like, looked down my nose at them. I really reveled in the fact that I had a class A problem. Yeah, well, also it's different, isn't it? Having an addiction and having the means to fund it yeah. and live in a quite a glamorous lifestyle. It really was. Wrongly, you know, it, it, it has a different intonation than an addict you see in Soho on the street. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was actually a badge of honour to be on some form of drug, you know, the, uh, in the mid eighties, <clears throat> late eighties and early nineties, there was a massive heroin, uh, uh, thing going on in London, especially mm. in London nightlife. The majority of London nightlife was on heroin. It was the, the drug of choice, but also, you know, anything else that came along, I would try and mm. then top up on, do you know what I mean? And that progression yeah. from cocaine to crack cocaine to free base, you know, mm-hmm. there was always, a you know, if you free-based coke, you always had a lot more money than everyone else. And so mm. that would be another badge of honour, it would be another Status. medal. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And everyone would be like, oh, what have you been doing? I've been on free-basing. Like, you know, which hence it was like having a Lamborghini, mm. 
mm-hmm. of the drug world. Do you get what I mean? The fact that you could wash up coke and smoke it. Yeah. And of course, it's crazy. What, totally. And when that money runs out, it turns to crack. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the progression from there, you know, moving on to street drugs, from going from class A to street, is quite a, a quite a, a, uh, a heavy thing. Yeah. Did you ever inject? No. I never inject, you know, I never did heroin. I always mm. say this, I never did heroin, but I used to, I used to boot, like smoke uh, opium, which is yeah. the same plant, but you know, that in my mind it yeah. wasn't heroin because I never injected it. But you know, mm. I, I remember we used to like, I'd be on the door of the wag club and I'd send my friend to the all night shop to get a Kit Kat so we could, and we'd say, you keep the chocolate, we'll have the foil. But it feels like this just, like how you talk about the Kit Kat, it became your norm and for everyone around you it was. It, it really wasn't is. like you were this desperately sad figure that was in the loo alone secretly doing it. It no. obviously was normal. It was It was a very glorified, glorified thing and uh, towards, I mean, obviously at the end it, it, it left me on my own in toilets doing it on my own and mm. locked in rooms, rocking backwards and forwards, pulling my own teeth out and other other extremities. But, you know, at the time... I, I read a quote that said you literally pulled your own teeth yeah, out of a screwdriver. Yeah, I pulled all... Well, it was kind of like a screwdriver and bits of wood and, you know, I, I bite my, my, my nails and when I took cocaine, that would get worse and worse so uh i would always have my fingers in my mouth and of course you know when you drink pints of jack daniels and coke constantly from thursday to monday you know the amount of sugar in that starts to rot your teeth then you mm-hmm. get the cocaine itself rots your teeth you know you're getting oh. your gums recede you i was smoking uh 200 cigarettes in three days chain smoking wow. i would chain smoke constantly there'd be one that I would leave burn all the furniture in the house if I was mm-hmm. DJing there'd be people would like look you're not smoking the DJ box because you're burning everything because I'd leave yeah. one burning there one burning on that speaker it was the way it was and that would recede your gums and of course it was only a matter of time before I started to get gum infections and stuff and I would dig and dig and dig and the more God. drugs that I took the more numb my face become mm-hmm. and in the end I would I had this thing where I thought I had animals living in my mouth so I would dig at the gums and dig at the gums and literally just pull and pull, pull at the teeth I would get one tooth and pull it and in the end uh I had one tooth left at the bottom, which would like would move like that, and I would just constantly fascinated and obsessed by it. And mm. I would rock backwards and forwards, digging, and uh, yeah. And so when I got at the end of the using, and I come to, I had no teeth apart from one, and I had to have an operation to cleanse my whole mouth, to so mm, a full dental God. cleanse, and I had to have to start the work to replace it all. It just, it sounds just torturous. I mean, is it, is it fair to say you got to psychosis point? A hundred percent. You know, I remember when I went finally got went to a drug dropping centre to ask for help, and I got diagnosed. Uh, uh, um, I had a, a session with a, a psychiatrist to see whether I was stable enough to go to treatment and stuff, and see what level I was at. And mm. I remember him saying, "Have you ever self harmed?" And I was like, "No." Never. Why would I self-harm? And my partner looked at me and said, you pulled your teeth out. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, but that wasn't self-harming. That was kind of, I'd normalised it. Mm-hmm. You know, my mm-hmm. psychosis had completely normalised it. I would, there were times when, there was one really horrible time when I was in Liverpool Street Station and I don't know how I got there. And people were morphing into the wall and I was having conversations with people that weren't there. And I, yeah. And the police come and got me and I got taken home and I was in my flat, having a party in my flat with about a hundred people. None of them were Mm -hmm. there. 
But in my right, head they right. were. And then I remember jumping out of bed and saying, oh, my God, the house is on fire. and running out of the house, no clothes on. And I, hit, I fell and hit my head and knocked myself out. And I woke up in hospital and I still was, my mind was still shot. You know, mm-hmm. thankfully I came back from it. But, you know, it, I, it, it was one of those scary moments where you think, okay, you need to slow down. You need to stop. Never to stop, but you need to slow down, mm. you know. But sometimes I feel like maybe there were people around you that for their own selfish reasons didn't want you to stop because yeah. your life and soul, you're probably also the provider sometimes. And actually for you to stop would, would take away from their enjoyment. I love you. You got it. So you hit the nail on the head because, you know, of course you're the party, you know, mm-hmm. those people, we surround ourselves with, with the yes people, you know, all the good people in my life by that point had gone. They become obstacles. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. anyone that said to you, Tony, you need to stop. Tony, look at you. You're not, this isn't you. I would get rid mm-hmm. of. Yeah. And I would surround myself. And, you know, my friend George, he says, he once, he says it all the time, but he said, the first time he said it was, you know, sometimes getting to you was like going through 20 people because I surrounded myself with like with different kind of people that stopped anyone, get anyone of that didn't want me to be doing what I was doing. I would, I would mm. get rid of. And all of the people I surrounded myself with, wanted me to wanted me to be that person I think that's the sad side to being a celebrity and being wealthy is actually you do attract quite soulless relationships that can end up literally being the death of you totally I mean you know those people don't want anything apart from drugs they want Mm. you know and also the sad thing about it is they want to see your demise you know there's Mm -hmm. there's a part of them that thrive on you being on the floor in your own house or look at the state of him. You know, they 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 gauge their own addiction at yours. They look at you and mm-hmm. think, "Oh, I'm not as bad as that." How did you? You know, how many years are we talking of addiction? Twenty eight. So for twenty eight years, how are you not dead? <laughs> how did you not die? This, even just from an accident, not necessarily even the abuse. Like you know, you said, what, in your I, head, or I, I I truly, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, today and I truly believe I'm on this earth for a reason. There's so mm-hmm. many situations where I should have been dead. Even as a kid, setting fires to the house for attention, mm-hmm. all the stuff that I did as a kid, I should be dead. Do you get what I mean? It's like there's been yeah. so many situations where I've ended up in the hospital and uh, crashed cars, you know, not even, I wasn't even driving them, but I managed to have a fight with the person driving it, so he'd crash it. And so many situations. And, you know, uh, I like to think it's because i got big earlobes. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> whenever I meet someone Japanese, they go, "Oh my God, you've got you're going to live long. You have great ja- great earlobes." But, but you know, it's it's for the grace of God. I really couldn't answer, answer that question because I did everything in my power to kill myself on a daily basis. Yeah, it's interesting when you sort of engage in therapy. They usually try and sort of take you back and, and look at your childhood mm. and try and sort of give you reasons behind what led you to addiction. Um, and you've mentioned your childhood a couple of times and. You know, although you're hugely successful now, you don't come from privilege. No. What was childhood like? Childhood was, I, so I, I was born in Pimlico. I grew up in Battersea. Um, my dad was a plumber. My mum was an early morning cleaner. Uh, we never we never went without, you know, uh, my, my dad was a great provider, but he was also a uh, 
a real man in the sense of, you know, he was six foot three, hand, mm-hmm. fingers like bananas. You know, he, I was his first son. My older brother was from my mum's first marriage. He was mm-hmm. always in trouble with the police. He got all the attention. So for me right. as a kid, uh, I learned, and my, it's really weird, we're just doing a book at the moment, and my mum has been talking quite openly about my childhood in it, which things I never realised. Mm-hmm. I had a collapsed lung when I was three years of age. And oh I went into hospital and my mum said that was the, that's when my life changed. Right. That's when I suddenly be- realised that I could get love and attention from being ill. So trauma, suddenly, yeah. yeah, so suddenly I would be, always throw myself downstairs. There was uh-huh. always accidents going on. Yeah, as I said, I set fire to the house on a couple of occasions. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I made up, I made up illnesses. Because I was getting that attention, you know, then my younger yeah. brother came along and he was my dad's golden child, you know. And yeah. uh, my mum says in, in the book that, you know, uh, when they brought him home from hospital, I said, please take him back. Please, please <laughs> take him back. I don't want him here. And it kind of was like that all the way through, really. You mm-hmm. know, I kind of resented him because he got the love and attention. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't cope with that. So growing up in that kind of uh, situation where you crave attention, negative attention finds you. And I got mm-hmm. preyed on as a kid, up like the age of nine and ten. Uh, I got sexually abused by a guy that was showing films in youth clubs. Of, right, co- okay. of course he was showing films in youth clubs. That's what they do. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I started working for him and it wasn't long before he was abusing me. And that kind of just... You know, that changed everything. That changed my world. That changed it sexualized How old were you me. Then? I was ten. It sexualized me at the age of ten. And mm-hmm. that changed the way I felt. And that kind of became my primary drug. Sex mm-hmm. became my primary drug. It changed the way I felt. It gave me an importance. It made me Your feel you know, and although at the time I was being preyed on and it was being manipulated into thinking that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and my mum had cancer at that point, so there was no one for me to turn to. My dad was heavily drinking at that point, so mm-hmm. that kind of changed it as well. The dynamics always changed in our house. Um, That's so sad. And I think of 10-year-old you, so alone and being, mm. like you said, you know, vulnerable, mm. being taken advantage of, yeah. with nowhere to turn to confide in anybody. Well, also, you know, you had the added bonus of <laughs> the added bonus of me being a, a gay kid. You know, I never ca- mm-hmm. came out. I never had that. I never was ne- ever, ever in the closet. You know, I, my parents always knew I was gay. They always knew I was going to be gay. You know, I was running around the house in drag, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. As those kids of that age do. When And for me, my mum always knew that. But the kids on my estate didn't. Right. You know, so I, I was not only being abused, but I was also, I, I was very aware about my sexuality, but I was very, very aware that, the kind of man my dad was and his acceptance mm. of it. And also society at that point in time, it wasn't, it wasn't the place where I could say, okay, look, everyone, I'm gay. Although they yeah. all kind of knew it. And I didn't want to get bullied and, and stuff like that. So I kind of had to live a lot, a lie. So there was already so much deceit going on. I was covering Did up. Did you try and act straight then? I kind of cover act, covered it all up with just being the most, naughtiest little brat that ever was you know I would yeah you know uh, there was trouble I was in it always Mm. and and that kind of that became 
that badge of honor at that young age yeah. of, okay, Tony's trouble, he's a laugh. You know, yeah. so I, a very early age, I, I learned to make people laugh was a really good shield. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. You've made this incredible documentary that I watched a while ago, and I was actually... I was gobsmacked, actually. It was so it's phenomenal documentary. It's been viewed by millions of people now. And there's this great bit with your mum where she's so just nonchalant and chilled out. And she's like, well, we always knew you were gay. We always accepted you as that. And it's just this beautiful exchange uh-huh. of pure love, unconditional love. You know, when I watched that film for the first time, that look, my hair's just stood on end. And, the, the, you know, the first time I watched it, they boys brought it over and they've like, look. And I watched it and it was that was the bit that made me cry and it still makes me cry mm. because it's my mum. It's my mum. Mm. And the reason I get upset by the film when I watch it uh, is because it's, it's the truth. And the mm. truth hurts. The truth she always hurts. And if it was a film of made up rubbish I'd laugh at it but you know there's there's really poignant bits in it about my mum and my mum's such a a beautiful beautiful soul Mm. she Mm. really is she stood by me for everything and I mean everything and you know there's been times when I've been so wrong and she knows I'm wrong but she won't say oh you're right Tony she'll tell me I'm wrong but at the same mm. time, to anyone else, she will stand up for me and stand my ground. And, you yes, know, and, yes. and, and she's, a, she's, a, the, you know, if you had to sum up the word uh, of mother, she, that's her, you know. Yeah. Yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. Beautiful. That's beautiful. So, you you know, you had to grow up pretty quickly. Mm. I mean, how did you end up defending yourself? How did this abuse stop? How did you break so, free? So uh, I can't actually tell you how I broke free from it. It's a part of my mind that's completely blank. Uh, I've mm. been having childhood trauma therapy on it uh, and mm. looking at that stuff. But you know what? It's really weird because when we started writing the book and I got to that that subject of him, uh, I got really ill. I got yeah, I started, yeah, yeah. I was really it's nauseous. A, a and I, I had a really bad headache, and I said to Mikey, "I'm doing mm. the book. We need to stop. I've, I I think I've got food poisoning." 
And uh, it wasn't. It was what it was was the fact that I was bringing that stuff up because in my mind, yeah. if I don't deal with something, it's been dealt with. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I plow. Yeah. I'm a plower, yeah, yeah. so I will plow on, and everything goes to the side, builds up, and finally it falls in on you. So I've always mm. plowed that, and I uh, never really discussed it with anyone because I, at the time, I thought I was in control of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and I kind of just, you know, there's certain smells and certain things that remind me of the hymn. Mm. Uh, there's an area in King's Cross where he lived that every time I go past it, it actually makes me want to vomit. Um, mm-hmm. cause it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, well, he abused me once or twice. It went on for three years, you know, so, and everything yeah. in his power he did to me to make me realize that I was the one that was guilty of it. Uh, that and, manipulation. And, and, yeah. And he basically stole, he stole, my youth, he stole that from mm-hmm. me. Um, and to, to talk about that stuff is really hard, but to remember it is even harder. Yeah. So yeah. my mind's like blocked that out. And, you know, shortly after all that abuse, I started to put on weight, which was mm-hmm. my way of, okay, I don't want anyone ever to come near me again. Yeah, so I got so really you've built fat. your own barriers. Yeah, at like mm-hmm. 13 and 14, hence the name Fat Tony. I, I, I weighed 18 stone at one point. When I was like, I wondered where the name came from. So that is where it came from. Yeah, it came from that. It came from the fact that it was like, which Tony Fat Tony behind your back, you know? And I just owned Mm. it. I was like, okay, I am Fat Tony. I'm going to own that name. Uh, Mm. And kind of the moment I owned it was the time I started to lose it. It was kind of, you know. um, Yeah. But yeah, that became my shield. And to look back on those days, it's it's kind of, it's not because so much has happened because I'm a really good, I have a really good memory in that sense. I just can't remember what happened to him. And how I got out of that situation. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that I probably got too old for him. I, I, I've never, ever allowed it to make me who I am. I don't blame that on addiction whatsoever. Because that's, that I was, you know, that I'm, I'm born an addict. It's in my wiring. How come you didn't ever think about throwing it all in and saying, I don't want to be a DJ anymore because look what this has bought me and look where I'm at? Because like, to think you're, you go into nightclubs sober mm, and you do this job, mm, like that's quite unheard of. Yeah. I mean, when you learn, and, and I say learn because you have to learn it the hard way, when you learn that you're not the party and that you learn... Mm-hmm that the party isn't the problem and you are the problem. That's yeah, when life changes. So important. And I kind of, you know, I can go to any nightclub now uh, and do what I do because I, 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 you know, the greatest drug I ever have taken in my life is music. And, and yeah. I, I love what I do again with a passion and I, it's my job. It's not my life. Yeah. I know where it took me and I know where it will take me. And the day that I do a drink or a drug is that I'll probably be dead within a week. And that's a fact. I was just going to say, without being too dark, it could kill you. Oh, it I mean, would. do you know 100%. medically how are you? Like, in incredible, and- believe it or not. I've got one blocked <laughs> off. One, I know, right? I come from, you know, I never drank water for 13 years. I mean, and you're actually really gorgeous <laughs> as well. Like, it's so unfair. Thank you. I, I honestly, I never drank water. I, you know, I would look at bottle. Jack Daniels was made with distilled spring water. So for me, that was water. You know, <laughs> uh, um, I literally, I was so dehydrated. I looked like the mummy. Um, and I just, I came through it. My liver functions great. Everything is, is working perfectly. Uh, I have one blocked artery wow. in my leg, which I, it's become a problem, which I'm going to have done. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, and that's it. 
maybe it makes you respect the body more because you actually think, you know, bodies can be ill, they can be shattered, they can go through trauma and they can, they can almost reinvent and they can go to a second life. And then as you get older, you think I've got to start paying it back a bit, you know? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the, uh, second life bit because you know for me recovery really has been a second life it's been the second chance but you know it's about but I think second chance has purpose like because now you know you're you're gonna make a film you've made this doc you're writing a book so I always think second chance has purpose and you're 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 being so honest Mm. and vocal you're not just telling the the good bits that make you feel good you're telling the truth so your second chance is maybe saving loads of people's lives well uh, you know if I save one person's life you know that's that's more than enough you know for me today I kind of think my truth is my honesty and it needs yeah I'm not ashamed of anything I've ever done because I, yeah. I, I've carried shame. I've carried shame for a long time mm-hmm. in my life. You know, so by giving people that direction of my own honesty, I think that it not only helps them, but it really helps me. Because there's mm. something. Well, this is one of the extraordinary things about this is like your extraordinary trait is this resilience to not feel shame and embarrassment and to own it, you know, even talking about the name DJ Fat Tony, to say, I'm going to claim back that ownership. You are not going to beat me with this stick. Mm. I I am what I am. And actually that's not that bad. And then, you know, now to go on and talk all about the imposter syndrome, the addiction, and to put it out there so that it can't be weaponized against you. No. That's quite resilient. I I think that, you know, in order for me to, to just to be who I am, Honesty is a really big paramount thing because I know and I've learned and I all continue to learn that, that the minute that I bring any form of deceit or hold anything back, it, it turns into something really nasty and it turns into something yeah. that I don't, the person, it makes me who I don't want to be. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that can happen really easily. So to stay on that path is to be as honest as possible. This is why I relate to you because, you know, I can be a bit of a self-sabotager. Mm. I can kind of be quite destructive yeah. as well. And, you know, I think I had a period in my life where people were weaponizing things against me. And actually when I took the ownership and said, you know what, uh, this is who I am. This is what I look like. I'm not going to try and hide it yeah. or pretend to be something I'm not. I know it. I'm I'm informed. I'm educated. And it's not my weakness. It's my strength. So don't try and use it against me. And that was a light bulb moment. Because, you know, you know it's their weakness. It's not yours. And the fact that they use that, 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 that comes from a place of fear. And the fact that Mm. you're doing that and you're being honest about that, a lot of people get really scared and offended by my honesty. Yeah. Uh, Because how can he, you know, because what you're doing is you're bringing, you're you're shining a light on their defects. And when you shine a light on their defects, their wall goes up and then therefore, how dare he say that? Or, you know, it's like with my Mm -hmm. memes, sometimes I post stuff and people are like, Oh my God, how can you post that? We have that? to talk about this. Yeah, how can you post Yeah. But you know, it, it, what it does is it, it shines a light on their arm, on, on their defects and their loopholes. And they, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of like, it brings it to the surface. And of course, they, can't they don't sit like with that. that. Of course not. You mentioned your Instagram account, which is like essentially you, you have this side career where you're this daily content creator and you literally change the way we feel every day. You. you give us this content. It's, it's Some of it's funny. Some of it's quite deep. Uh, some of it's just hilarious. And we screenshot and send in our WhatsApp groups to our friends. But is is there a real depth to it in that you, you're trying to give it's something me. to people? It's just me. You know, it's uh, like... It, you know, there's there's no format to it. I mean, I I, I steal memes. I take memes. I where do you find all this over the shit, stuff? Though? I'm obsessed. So I will find stuff. I I I archive it all. Um, 
I have yeah. all on my phone. So I take stuff and then I will remember the situation will come up and I will remember, oh, my God, I've got this, and I will go and find it. <laughs> and literally for hours I, I, I'm on there. My partner, Dave's like, get off your phone. But it's like I'm just taking photos from different things and adding them yeah, to the end. I love it. Uh, you know, but in the morning I do that thought of the day and it's kind of, you know, I, I always think about what I post at that point mm, and I mm. post throughout the day, you know, current situations or I go, you know, a little bit below the belt quite a bit, uh, you know, and I get situations like yesterday there was a meme with uh, the Queen chopping off Captain Tom's head whilst nighting. Oh, I saw that, yeah. Oh, my God, this woman was like, you know, this is not funny. That You know, she, the, he was the saviour of coronavirus. He was the saviour, oh, yeah, through COVID. You know, I find this disrespectful. And I was literally simply wrote back, it's a meme, fuck off. You know, and and, yeah. and and the fact that I wrote fuck off got more likes than that, you know. the Because it's yeah, like, you know, yeah. it's a, it is what it is. And, and you know, it... You know, mm-hmm. people love to hate you for what you do. And it's like, you know, mm. I mean, I got really excited last night because Lisa Rimmer's following me and I didn't even realise. Oh, you know, really? just like, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. go for, I don't look at who follows me. I kind of know. And it kind of like, you know, uh, it, it's fun. It's lightheartedness. Yeah, it's a community. Yeah, it really is. Well, and the nice. amount of people that messaged me throughout the whole yeah. lockdown thing saying, you're getting us through, you're a hero. And I was like, thank you. Uh, you yeah, know, it's, you did. You really cheered me up. And it's, up you know, my it's another arm of my insanity sometimes, to go what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you've got to yeah. laugh at every situation. People always go, oh, how can you do so many drug memes, you know, when you're an addict? Because I've lived that life. I can laugh at that life. Do you know what I mean? I You're find yeah. I find light in in every dark situation. There's got to be, you know, mm. you've got to to overcome something. You've got to understand it, and then you can laugh at it. You know. Yeah, it's interesting because you've talked about imposter syndrome. <laughs> That's my dog. It feels like oh, <laughs> bless him. He wants his dad back. Um, you you talked about imposter syndrome, and you seem like almost a bit of a perfectionist, perhaps. And you know, you have truly gigged for some of the most famous mm. people in the world. You know, you talked about the Beckhams. Uh, there was Meghan and Harry's wedding. Um, I wondered if there'd been like a real career highlight for you and if there is anything unfulfilled in terms of the aspirations I've, for your I, career. I get asked this question a lot, what's the, what, what's the best gig you've ever done? And I kind of just think it's always say the same thing. It hasn't happened yet. Because you know what? There's always something else that comes along. You know, it could be the most mm. simplest of gigs that I've done and I just think, oh my God, this doesn't get better than this. And then it could be mm-hmm. the most land lavish flamboyant gig that I've ever done. I find myself, you know, like last year in a revolving 80 foot high revolving red cube in the middle of Hyde Park DJing. And I just thought, Oh my God, this is insane. And then I'd be on a plane flying to Miami to do some, somebody else's or working for Elton and just so many, I did, you know, doing the rocket man tour, like playing at all the premieres. I was like, wow. And then they Elton got me to fly and DJ at the Troubadour where he did his first yeah. gig and it was a real, things like that are a real honour, a real honour. And it's like, you know, and I just, I sometimes I have to pinch myself and think, oh my God, you were like, I was homeless and toothless 13 years ago. Yeah. And now I'm doing it's all this true. amazing, incredible stuff. Sounds like a meme, but it's not. It's, it's so true. Bad. You know, I had one yeah. pair of trainers I'd stolen from someone's house the night before. Yeah. That was it. That was what I had, except for I had the love of people that wanted me to get well. And I have to remember and that's that. The and, and that is thing. the important thing. And today mm-hmm. when I do all of this stuff, this work comes in and I'm truly, you know, I did, just did Victoria back of birthday party from my own back garden. 
That stuff don't Funny. happen. Do you get what I mean? It's like you think, hang on, yeah, what's going yeah. on here? And, uh, you know, to you? Uh, yeah. and I did a, a, a private party the other week with Mark Wahlberg dancing in his kitchen mm. to me on Zoom. Like and it. I'm just like, what the, what is going yeah. on? But I, and also at the same time, I can go and do someone's, you know, someone's like christening or wedding, like friends. And, and those moments are so special mm. because you know what it is? The fact that people love me for what I do. And not I, who I am. Because or, you're a kind and good person. It's, it's amazing. You know, I, the, the, yeah. throughout lockdown, I was doing glitter box sets. Of the, you know, glitter box is this big club in Ibiza and in London, in England. And it's like, mm. you know, uh, and my my sets were being so well received. You know, I did, when the Mix Mag film came out, I did, they do a thing called The Lab where you go in and you DJ. And it's normally... Yeah. You know, the people that watch it are really like, you know, bedroom DJs that love to slag everyone off. And I just thought... Yeah, critics, yeah. the yeah. week before they'd had this this gay club on there that had, had got so much homophobic abuse. And I rang the guys from Mixmag mm. and I said, what are we going to do? Because next week, I mean, the king of the gays is coming on me and if they're getting that abuse, what's going to happen? And I, I mm. was literally dreading it. All week long, the film came out on the first day. Yeah, the, it, it, the film, the day the film came out, it went boom, and I was just like, "Wow!" Then we did the lab, and the amount of love that I got, it made me cry for every day. I was like thinking, "Oh my god, I'm really, yeah. it, I, you know, just that acceptance of my career." You need to be kinder to you. I do. Yes, you're so talented I, and amazing. I, you know, I, I'm learning to do that slowly. At 13 and a half years, I'm just now learning start being kinder to myself and to find time more time for myself mm. because I've, I spend so much time on it. other people and sponsors and stuff like that or trying to work with, on other mm-hmm. stuff that I don't hold anything back for me and I certainly don't hold anything back for my relationship sometimes and that's the most important yeah. thing in my life like lockdown's taught it, us lockdown really has taught yeah. me that that this situation uh wasn't lockdown wasn't a situation it was a blessing for me to actually go back to realize yeah, that what I've got i.e with David and with Taylor being at home with them was was priceless Reset. and it really was it really bonded mm. my relationship and it just yeah, yeah. the simple things Katie do you know what after 28 years of staying away for a week at a time and uh pulling out your own teeth I think your body could have done with a bit of downtime you know that so. right <laughs> you know that definitely (laughs) what a great way to end it you know i actually feel really uplifted by what you've said oh Um, thank you so much yeah it's a real honor that you've asked me to do this oh well thank you so much and it's been so lovely to kind of like virtually connect with you and just you know what you give people so much hope because you genuinely nearly lost your life you came back all through your own determination self-belief resilience and i think this episode is going to speak to lots of different people in lots of different situations so thank, thank you. you so much well, we should just say for anyone listening if they want to get your book watch your documentary like where should they go so the or, documentary at the moment you? is on youtube and on mixmag mm-hmm. it's on facebook on mixmag had three and a half million three three point one million on facebook alone and then it's had this and Excellent. that it's so it's going on over mm. four and a half million it's it's uh it's on there at the moment you can go to fat tony on youtube to my youtube channel there's all stuff on there and the recovery's mm. on youtube on fat tony the recovery um, okay. Yeah, okay. and just well, follow me on Instagram. There you go. Oh, and if you, you know, I will want to say, as I always say to everyone, if you have got a problem and you get something from what you're, we've been talking about today, you can. You're welcome to drop me a DM, and I'll answer yeah. you like I always do. Ah, and that's why you're lovely. Oh, shut up. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.